Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and I'm an avid book lover and I really love listening to authors tell their story. So, in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to a well-known author to find out what's going on in their world and we'll also update you on books, news and events taking place around the country. We love hearing from you, so feel free to get in touch. Follow us on Twitter on Inside Books, I-R-E, or email us on InsideBooks at UniqueMedia.com. Later in the programme, we'll be chatting with Martin Doyle about his role as books editor of the Irish Times and especially his criteria for choosing which books to review every week. But first, Anthony Horowitz is a British writer who pens books, films, plays and television series. On the book side, he has written a phenomenal 46 titles. Younger readers will know him from his Alex Ryder series, which is about a teenage spy, while in more recent years he's written for adults, including two Sherlock Holmes novels and a James Bond book. His TV work includes creating and writing Foil's War, Injustice and New Blood, and he's also written episodes of Agatha Christie's Poirot and Midsummer Murders. Anthony, you definitely like to keep busy. I do enjoy writing. In fact, I think there's nothing else in the world that gives me as much pleasure. So, And you, why do you juggle so much, I suppose, writing between TV and film and writing books? They're really different writing styles. I'm told, or some people think, that it's not been a sensible thing to do, to do so many different things, because people don't quite know where to pigeonhole me. And actually, one of the things you need to be these days as a modern writer is easily pigeonholed. So when people pick up your new book, they know exactly what they're going to get. And I think sometimes I have to reinvent myself every single time. You said it yourself in your introduction, you know, going from sort of Sherlock Holmes to Bond to original murder mysteries is perhaps uh, a mistake. But why do I do it? Because I've always thought that writing is an adventure and that I love to challenge myself. I love to do different things. Um, You know, the idea of just writing the same book or a similar book year after year after year is something of an anathema to me. I couldn't have done it. Because I imagine if you are doing the same thing all the time, it just has to be get boring eventually. Well, yes and no. I mean, there are writers out there who have had long running series of 20 to 30 books and they seem to be as good as ever and they're certainly as popular as ever. I mean, look at Ian Rankin with Rebus, who is a friend of mine and his books are still good, as good now as they were at the very beginning. And he somehow seems to reinvent the character in himself with every book. That's his skill. I'm just not the same. I have a sort of imagination that likes to dot around. I like to sort of... Ideas come to me all the time. Everywhere I go, everything I do, everybody I meet gives me an idea. And the trouble is that those ideas aren't necessarily organised. They can't be categorised. They're different. But the recurring theme in a lot of work is murder and mystery and suspense. I do like, yes, I've, I like magic. I like sleight of hand, illusion, deception. And deception, of course, lends itself very, very well to, um, to whodunits and to murder mysteries. And your latest book is called The Word is Murder and it features a writer and a former detective and they team up to solve... A murder. Yes, you make it sound sort of fairly formulaic and ordinary, but actually there is a real twist to it, because when I was asked by my publisher, in fact, having spoken about doing different things, my publisher, Random House, has been very keen for me to sort of buckle down and do a new series, where actually you do give audiences uh, what they expect, so the same character and the same sort of stories. And I have written Murder Mystery for many, many years uh, on television, Midsummer Murders, Foil's War, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and shows like that. But it only occurred to me recently that I should start doing it in book form. And the the immediate question was, 
how can I do it with a twist? What can I do that was different, that hadn't been done before? That's just the way I like to think. It's not, you know, what will succeed or what is necessarily what people want. It's what's new, what's unexpected. And so I had this idea that I would come up with a detective. His name is Daniel Hawthorne, who solves murders. He is a consultant working for Scotland Yard, a rather damaged individual, not the most pleasant of men. But what gives the book a twist is, is that Daniel Hawthorne has decided he needs somebody to ghostwrite his life and his investigations, simply for him to make money. He has this idea, write a book and let's split it 50-50. The author that he approaches to write this book is me. Yes. So I am inside my own book, very much the Watson to his homes, uh, the narrator and the sort of the, the unfortunate sidekick. So why did you do that? Why did you want to write yourself into the story? Because it changes everything. This is what it does. It means that I can write a perfectly classical murder mystery with clues, suspects, red herrings and surprises and deaths, obviously. But I can do it from a completely different perspective. The writer, Doyle or Christie or whoever it may be, is on top of a hill looking down into the valley. And he or she sees everything. The, 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 the solution is in plain sight to them the whole time mm-hmm. because they've invented it. The characters, when they speak, are speaking the lines that they have given those characters. But if you come off the mountain and go into the valley, which is what I've done by becoming the sidekick, suddenly you're looking at the book from the inside out. And what's interesting for me is, is that in The Word is Murder, I'm the only character who has absolutely no idea what is going on. Worse than that, I don't get on very well with Hawthorne. He reads my material. He doesn't like it. He keeps on telling me that I'm not writing it properly and he tells me there are clues that I haven't spotted and I at the same time am desperately worried that he won't actually solve the crime because if he doesn't solve the crime I won't have a book and I'm wasting my time so the whole relationship has changed I'm no longer in power I am I'm sort of traipsing along sort of rather desperately and it's a great device because again it gives an insight into what's going on but one thing I did wonder was how true to life is the character that's in the book to you. Well, that's for the reader to decide. I mean, I I have put a lot of my real life into it, but my real writing life. You know, I think the the most important thing to remember is that I am not the hero of this book any more than Watson is a hero of a Sherlock Holmes novel. In fact, how much do you really know about Dr. John Watson to give one example? You know, we know he's married, he was wounded in Afghanistan, he has a wife called Mary, and he has a voice, but that's about it. He is he's very much on the side of it and the focus is on Sherlock Holmes. That is what the case is here in the word is murder. It is not about me and I am not promoting myself or telling you anything about my life that is, you know, of of interest or not. I am there as the narrator. Uh, And how much of it is true? Well, obviously there are references to Foyle's War. There are people that I have worked with turn up in the book, some of them fairly well known. Some of them very well known. I mean, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson at one point were discussing a screenplay you wrote for the Tintin movie. I worked very briefly with them and admired them both very much, I have to say, and had the idea when I was writing the book, well, it's set in 2013, so why not have a scene when I'm discussing the script which is incidentally then interrupted by a knock on the door and my fictitious character Hawthorne bursts in and completely disrupts the meeting. It's it's a chapter that people find I think, well certainly I find sort of quite entertaining because it's so sort of bizarre and off the wall. Um, and I think I suppose when you think about the concept and see it maybe on paper as an idea you might go, hmm, will this work? But it really does work in terms of picking up the book and reading it. My publisher was concerned about it for lots of reasons. She was worried that there might be a case of, you know, that I was blown my own trumpet or you know that it was too much about me but you know the the other thing about this book is is this is that what I was really keen to do was to to do more than a whodunit 
The word is murder is about both murders and about words. It's about writing. And I have become interested. Magpie Murders, my last book, also touched on this. The whole nature of writing. Writing murder mysteries. Why do we like murders in books? What is the point of it? How do you do it? Where where do you begin? All these sorts of questions, which after writing for as long as I have, is sort of of interest to me. Had I written just a straightforward sort of how-to-write type book, and there are such things mm-hmm. in the shops, I would have found it very dull and very sort of self-promoting. But to do it as just part of a whodunit, the life of the writer sitting next to the life of the detective, is, I think, sort of novel and and, and entertaining. And, and that, that is the idea. And certainly different, yes. Absolutely. And it is the start of a new series, as you say. So how many more should we expect? Well, I'm very interested in Hawthorne as a character. What is He is not a pleasant person. I mean, he has... He, he is likeable. I think at the end of the book, you have to like him, because if you don't like the main character in a book, you won't read it. And I think at the end of the day, he is quite likeable, and there is something about him. He's damaged. Something has happened in his life that has turned him into this very, very difficult and contrary man. And in the course of of the word is murder, I sort of become a detective trying to find out what it is that has turned him into what he is. And I think it'll take me about nine books to actually discover <laughs> right. the secret of, of Hawthorne. And have many of you written already? Just the one. There is another one sort of in the pipeline. It's called uh, Another Word for Murder, after which I will stop doing titles with word and murder <laughs> in them. But uh, uh, that is the second one, which I'm sort of thinking up at the moment. Now, this is your 46th novel. And I mean, that's just a phenomenal number. Well, I think it's my 46th novel. I've sort of lost count. Um, Yes, it's certainly more than 40 and less than 50, so it's somewhere between the two. Um, And it is a lot of writing, yes. And you have copies of every single one of them in your house? Yes, I do have copies. Um... In lots of different languages, too. In fact, I sometimes wonder why I have them all on my shelves, you know, sort of Croatian versions of Alex Ryder or um, Japanese um, Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, I can't read them and they sit there and they actually take up space that um, other books could be occupying. And I know that the moment I die, my children will call in a skip and they'll all disappear. <laughs> but, uh, but they are there and, uh, and I sort of surround myself with them. And you've said before you write quite quickly. I write very intensely, uh, uh, intensively. And um, uh, whether that's quick or not, I don't know, I'm writing a new James Bond book at the moment and I've been working on it for about um, two months and I'm only about 12 pages in and that's not quick, but it's been very intensive. And is that because you haven't written a James Bond in a little while or once you get into a flow of it again, will it just run? Well, it says in 1950-something, and like the last one was, Trigger Mortis, and therefore every single sentence almost has to be sort of checked against research. You know, if Bond lights a cigarette, what cigarettes were around in 1950? What cigarette lighter might he have used? So then you go back into the books to check out, you know, the gunmetal Ronson, which is actually James Bond's cigarette lighter. And it just it's just a sort of rather slow process to keep getting it right so that I don't upset the purists. I think as the book goes on it'll speed up because you eventually get into sort of action sequences and character which is easier to write than the sort of the nitty gritty particularly in the opening chapters. And on that then I mean how did it feel to be handpicked by you know that estate and the Conan Doyle estate as well to write and continue the work of such, you know, fabulous detectives like Sherlock well, Holmes and, and James Bond. When um, the Doyle estate came to, which is the first time, and the House of Silk was the result of that, um, well, it was hugely 
gratifying. I mean, I, I was very privileged. I wouldn't have done these books if it weren't for the fact that I am in awe of the powers of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Ian Fleming. They are and always have been my two favourite writers. And I'm talking now about, you know, finding them when I was in my early teens. Um, so I'm, I'm not a writer for hire to just, you know, do, do a ventriloquist job on any writer you care to mention. But that said, once I've been invited to do it, I had to draw a breath because these are much, much better writers than me. And you have to, I have to, first of all, raise my game to write in their style, to, to write as well as them. But at the same time, it's also a case of, of losing my own ego as a writer and hiding myself. These are, can't be my books. They are their books in a you. funny way. That's right. I mm. mean, it's, it's a case of trying to, to emulate them, to work out what their tropes are, what their tricks. Both Doyle and Fleming have very interesting devices that they use to make their books work. And it's trying to work out, first of all, what those devices are and then replicating them that makes these books such a challenge. And again, the challenge is the word that, that seems to be coming up quite a bit. You do like the challenge by the sounds of it. I think that writing has to be challenging. I think that, you know, to write always in your comfort zone, to write the books you know will sell, that's fine for some writers, but not for me. I write so much. So much of my life is devoted to books, reading them and, and writing them and thinking about them and talking about them, that it's inconceivable that I should just simply explore one narrow road when there's this fantastic landscape. Uh, so in both what I read and in what I write, I, I try to, to find different things. And you have a new Alex Ryder out? Uh, yes, um, it came out actually a few months ago, uh, Never Say Die, the uh, 11th or 12th Alex Ryder book. I wasn't going to do any more of them, but... I'd left Alex in such a bad place after Scorpio Rising, after the the books, you know, but, uh, the, all these different adventures had left him very damaged and depressed. And I think that as a writer for young people, if I have one responsibility, it is to be optimistic and to be forward-looking. And so it seemed right to revisit the character and cheer him up and take him back almost to where he had begun with Stormbreaker. You nearly owed it to your readers, did you? Yes, to a certain extent. Also to my publishers and to teachers who still support those books in schools and to, you know, I was very also keen to um, revisit the young people who had read me in, when they were 8, 9 and 10 who are now in their 20s and even their early 30s. You know, I've been going so long and in a sense this book was for them too. And what else is in the pipeline then? Well, I have uh, James Bond to finish. I, I'm three chapters in, as I've said. Then I've got another Hawthorne book. Uh, and if the two books together, um, The Word is Murder and Another Word for Murder, are successful enough, I hope to take that to a 10-book series. Uh, I have one more Diamond Brothers book in my head, which is this is another set of characters I wrote when I was you know, younger and, and uh, for children. I have another trilogy for children I want to write, which I'm sort of interested in for teens, I should say, a sort of a big Hunger Games-style trilogy that I've been thinking about. There's a work of what I might even call literary fiction, which is mm. nudging up my consciousness. Sometimes I think I might actually completely start again in another name because it might be quite interesting to, to rebuild a, a, a new career rather than to continue sort you've, of hammering on in my own name. You've no intention then of, of stopping or hanging up the, the spurs at this point? Not until I die. <laughs> and one of the other things you did said is that the only time you're totally happy is when you're writing. 
that's not entirely true. I mean, I, I, I'm very happily married. I have two lovely sons and I have a very nice life in London and a dog and uh, <laughs> and I have friends and, and I go to the theatre a lot and I go to Suffolk where I go walking and I love coming to places like Dublin and being on book tour. So a lot of my life is not writing and is very pleasant indeed uh, and I'm very grateful for it. But the truth is I'm only, shall we say, fully sustained. I'm only myself when I'm sitting writing. That's when I feel that I'm you know, living my life. Anthony Horowitz, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Inside Books and Anthony's book, The Word is Murder, is in all bookshops now. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter on Inside Books IRE or email us on insidebooks at uniquemedia.ie. Martin Doyle is the books editor of the Irish Times. As well as being responsible for the books pages in the newspaper every Saturday, he also looks after all of the books-related content on the Irish Times website. He, essentially, is the one who decides whether or not a book is reviewed for the Irish Times. I went down to the podcast studio of the Irish Times and firstly asked Martin how he decides which titles to review every week. Um. I'm looking for books which I think the readers uh, will be interested in reading about or should be reading. Um, A lot of them, to be honest, probably um, uh, choose themselves. For example, coming up, we've got Dermot Ferreter reviewing Atlas of the Irish Revolution by Cork University Press, which is, you know, uh, one of the big publishing events of the year. So, you know, that's a gimme, if you like. Um, That's something we would always be going to review. If there's a new Salman Rushdie or a new book by Colm Tobin, um, again, um, these are books that we have to review that people are going to be interested in in reading. Um, perhaps the the what we can bring to the party are, is being aware of, of books that maybe people otherwise wouldn't be aware of. For example, Fintan O'Toole on the 16th of September is reviewing the Lure of Greatness by Anthony Barnett, uh, which is a book on Brexit by the founder of Charter 88, which is being published by Unbound. So it's not a particularly mainstream title, but it's a very significant one on an important subject. And are you quite conscious of balancing the genres and making sure that you, you have books from various different areas? Absolutely. Like every week you're looking to strike the balance between uh, fiction and non-fiction, Irish and international and perhaps serious and something lighter. Um, The balance isn't always 50-50, but over time uh, you want to kind of get the mix right that's going to make it an informative but entertaining read each week. And obviously you're quite conscious of what your readers want to, to read about. I think so. Like, you know, we haven't particularly done market research, um, but I think over time you get a sense of of what appeals to to the average reader. Uh, you know, I would attend a lot of events and I talk to, you know, a lot of writers, a lot of readers, a lot of reviewers. Um, it's not quite the hive mind, but, you know, over time you do um, get a feel for um, what the literary community or the book buying public are interested in. And how far in advance then do you have to stockpile the content? Because obviously, you know, you get books probably weeks before they're on shelves. So what's that timeline like? Um, You don't necessarily have the the reviews stockpiled. What you do have is a knowledge of when books are being published. And so maybe two months in advance, I would have a schedule. I'm sitting here with a schedule running up until the beginning of December. So I would pretty much know more or less 
what books I'm going to be reviewing over the next two months. But some of those books I mightn't actually have seen. I just know about them from a catalogue or from speaking to um, a publisher or PR person. And is it a case, would it mostly be publishers who are coming to you or do authors come to you themselves? Um, not often authors. Um, quite often um, reviewers, like people who have reviewed for me in the past, so many of whom are in fact authors, will um, flag something up and say that such and such a book is coming out in a couple of months and they would like to review it. Um, would I commission them? So I guess the where decisions come from are um, catalogues are sent in um, by the publishers or I might be visited by um, their PR people in-house or, or freelance. Um, then there's the bookseller, the weekly uh, trade magazine, which flags up um, important books that are coming up in the weeks and months ahead. And then, as I say, pitches directly from reviewers who would have their own sources or their own knowledge about you know what's what's coming up. And what happens if you know the book doesn't live up to maybe expectations? Do you do you do? negative book reviews in the interest of being fair to the to the to your reader as such or what yeah. way do you approach that yeah like very much so our i see um our primary responsibility um is to to the reader our you know in other words we, you know we're there not to kind of praise books or make authors feel good about themselves our role is to review books honestly and let uh, readers know um our opinion of them um, otherwise, you know, what's the point? We're just uh, we're promoting books rather than actually critiquing them. Um, that said, you know, I don't like a review where you get the sense that um, it's intemperate or whatever. You want I, I want reviews that are honest and mm -hmm. fair. But that's I don't like. You know, sometimes people say, "Oh, you could have been more generous." But I think that's a very loaded and dangerous uh, term for review. Basically, that means you know it's nice to be nice and you know go easy on on some someone. I think much better to uh, be honest. And sometimes they might come across as harsh. Obviously, inevitably, the author of the in receipt of a bad review is is going to I think take it personally. How could you not? I th I think I would. Um, but. Um, as long as the, the reviewer can justify their, their criticisms, I think it's not only fair, but it's necessary. How did you get into this whole business? Um, I've been in journalism for um, 20... <laughs> trying <laughs> to remember. 25 years, a long time, <laughs> a long time. Um, I started in journalism in 1990. Um, and in London and I worked for the Irish Post for nine years and I was arts editor there to begin with. And so in the early 90s, from the early 90s onwards, I'd have been interviewing a lot of authors like, say, Pat McCabe. I interviewed when The Butcher Boy came out. That was, I don't know, 91 or 92. So it was a personal passion, really, then? Yeah, well, I grew up in the, in the north uh, of Ireland and I think um, I kind of, like, I always liked reading or whatever, but I think um, it probably became for me definitely I kind of homed in on the Irish books in the local library in Banbridge where I grew up and um, I I've saw it as a way of kind of um, you know exploring an identity and maybe a you know in the north identity is very much contested and I've I found it um, um, a, a fascinating maybe a subconscious way of kind of just 
engaging with an Irish identity, uh, reading books obviously from northern writers like Bernard McLaverty, Jennifer Johnston or Joan Lingard, but also, um, you know, writers from the island of Ireland like, say, Frank O'Connor or Brendan O'Hare and so forth. Um, yeah, that so was something. It's, it's been an interesting career and every day is different, I'd say. Yes, well, and like I've been working on the books pages here from 2014 and I guess, you know, one of the innovations I brought to the job was seeing the potential to do a lot more online. Um, like there's four broadsheet pages in Saturday's paper, but whilst we try and cover the most important books or whatever, there's a lot more going on and there are a lot of books that d deserve to be reviewed or featured or covered in some shape or form and in the Irish Times. the space to do that. Absolutely. Yes. Like, you know, you never fill the internet, but um, so the restrictions are obviously on, on my time and you've got to, you know, you can't, there's only so much that you can publish, but I, I, I have uh, done my best to um broaden, expand and deepen uh, the type of coverage that we give to books. For example, giving a platform to authors to maybe write an essay, um, a thousand words or so about their book. The story behind the story is the sort of the general idea and just maybe broader kind of features about the 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 publishing industry, how authors make a living um, and so forth, or maybe some of the contentious issues that that, that arise from time to time. For example, we've spoken about uh, criticism and reviews. Um, I did a big piece after a particularly critical review that was controversial, and that was just a very interesting exploration, asking a lot of authors their, their views on, you know, what is a f what is a good, what makes a good review, and what's it like to be on the receiving end of a negative review? Also, if, for example, say when a, a a big name author dies, for example, William Trevor, um, mm -hmm. I would contact a lot of the authors and, and reviewers that um, I would deal with, and ask them for for their response or to uh, pay their respects, whatever. So that's an interesting exercise where you can again, get a broad um, range of opinions rather than perhaps in the past you might just have had, you know, one or two viewpoints um, touching on a subject. For example, say when when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for in literature, um, again, that was an opportunity to, to, to cast around and, and get a, a range of opinions. And I think that's interesting. Um, it always strikes me like when you when you review a book, um, that is sort of the the Irish Times position, but of course, if you'd given the book to somebody else, it might have been a, mm -hmm. a, a totally different uh, interpretation um, or critique. But uh, so online gives you an opportunity to to get um, a wider a wider range. Well, Martin, thank you. That was a fascinating insight into into how the world of a, of a books editor works. Thank you for joining us on Inside Books. Thanks, Brida. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon, so just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooksIRE. And if you want to get in touch, email us on InsideBooks at UniqueMedia.ie. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a Unique Media production. 